you fall asleep, I swear I'll just go right up to your face. And go, boo! Okay, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to the book of Luke, or as us nerds like to say, what? Luke. God says, I am your father. Luke. I tried to get my wife to name one of our kids Luke. And I heard that, I heard that joke, and I was like, that would be amazing to be able to walk around and say, Luke, I am your father. And actually be true? I thought that would be neat. But then my wife was like, no. And then Optimus Prime was out of the question too, so I couldn't do that either. Those probably that went, unless you're Transformer people. Opti- any Transformers? Oh, there we go, Mark. Yay, okay. Uh, oh, <laughs> Omnicron? <laughs> That's true. Omnicron. All right, so if you're in the book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 2. And so for a lot of you who've grown up in church, this passage that we're going to look at is uh, very familiar. We're going to be looking at verses one through seven, and then the next passage where the angels announce uh, to you know announce the, the birth of Jesus to the the shepherds and good news of great joy. We're going to read through that uh, this on Friday. Can you believe we're Christmas Eve already? So yes, I encourage you to come on Christmas Eve. But uh, this is a very familiar passage. You've read a lot uh, during this time. Unfortunately, this uh, particular passage gets a bit lost in all the spectacle of the season. Um, so much so that the birth of Jesus ends up looking more like a Hallmark card. You know, you, you know there's, there's Joseph and, and Mary. They don't look at all like they just traveled 80 to 95 miles to Bethlehem. Mary is all calm and collected. Doesn't look at all like she's just given birth and pers- pushed a living person out of her. The baby's all clean, this little feeding trough, and there's little animals, but no manure, no any dirtiness, flies, or any of that. And it looks nice. It's this soft, perfect picture. And even non-religious people will look at that and go, yeah, this is very nostalgic uh, for the holiday season. And basically all that veneer, it loses its punch. The world will take the twinkling lights, the music, the decorations, the gingerbread cookies, Rudolph, and a magical fat guy dressed in red who does a slew of home invasions one evening. Um, people are apparently okay. They just give them cookies. Uh, they wrap that all up, and they say, this is worth celebrating. But as, as Christians, we take a baby born in a small, insignificant town some 2,000 years ago to two parents who were very young. We already talked about that last week. Mary could have been 12 to 14 years old. They were poor, and they were shrouded in this uh, cultural scandal because she was betrothed to Joseph, but yet she was pregnant. And so that's going on. So these two parents, and and we, we say this, is worthy of celebrating. In fact, this is the main reason we should celebrate any season, especially this season, because this birth changed everything. And the world looks and goes, scratches their head, really? So what we're going to do, we're going to look at this passage. So if you're there in the book of Luke, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses, um, let me see, verses 1 through uh, 7, 1 through 7. One through seven. 
So in the original language in, in, in Greek, which is Greek, uh, this begins with a, a, a verb. It's a, it says, ginoomai, uh, and it basically means to, uh, it came about or it came to happen. And so what Luke is saying is now it came to happen in those days. This is starting at verse uh, one of chapter two. Now it came to happen in those days, referring to, the past, referring to the days that he's talking about, the days when Jesus was born, a decree went out. A decree, this was not a government mandate. This was not a you know, suggestion. This was law. This was a rule. This is something that, you, that the, the people uh, of uh, Rome had to follow. A decree went out uh, from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken. The idea is, is that an enrollment be, uh, be taken, a register or a, an inventory would be a good way of, of uh, understanding that, um, of, the, all, all, of the, all the inhabited earth. Let me say that again because I'm getting all spluttered. A census be taken of all the inhabited earth, and that would refer to all the Roman Empire. That was the inhabited earth. Everywhere else was barbarians and all that kind of thing. Um, the way Rome kept the people in check was a, a massive, intimidating military presence. And, and in order to have that military presence all over the empire, it required a lot of money. And in order to get that money, you tax the people. And so these censuses were a way to... Censuses? Is that the plural? Sensi? Censusi? Okay, the plural form of censuses... Um, <laughs> just stop. <laughs> Sus, yeah. Um, these, they would be taken so they could get an inventory of all the people so that they can tax uh, uh, accordingly. Um, what unfortunately majority happened is that these taxes uh, would just go to pad the pockets of the Roman elite. And so this census was, it was taken into all, all the inhabited world and verse 2, this was the first census, the first registration taken while Quirinius was governor or a leader or ruler of Syria. In those days, you, know, you have a massive empire, and in order to make sure that the will of Rome was happening, you would establish these uh, rulers, these governors in different provinces. And so Quirinius is one of those rulers whose job was to do the will of Rome, but again, most of the time, they would do the will of themselves and then do the will of Rome. But uh, if you're doing any uh, a study of this passage, this is probably where you would have found many skeptics pointing at. So this is probably one of the most controversial passages in Luke, and it's starting right off the bat in chapter 2. Um, because they'll say, you know, we have actual, you know, records of uh, well-respected ancient historians like Josephus who bring up Quirinius as the governor of Syria. And yes, during his rule, there was this census that was taking place, but it took place probably around 6 AD, which would have been about 10 years after the birth of Jesus. And so the skeptics look at it and go, see, right here evidence that the bible is wrong and you can't trust it and for a lot of uh new believers people individuals young in their faith it's it's actually devastating they go oh are you serious yes look all the documentation the bible is wrong you can't trust this thing if you can't trust this what else can't you trust you know it just goes down it's a, it's a slippery slope 
Or it's like that snowball that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a big, huge problem. But, you know, God doesn't want us to be, let something like this mess up with our, mess with our faith. The, the reality is whenever we read uh, this, this book and we come across a passage that seems to contradict history or at least our understanding of what was going on at the time, rather than just us going directly and saying this is wrong, I would submit to you that we say we're wrong. That somehow we're wrong, we don't understand. One, one of the real reasons is because we weren't even there. You guys, there's been thousands of years of history that have gone before us. That's a long time. And I think it's very smug to say that we know everything there is to know of the history of this world. It's very smug to say we know every detail. The truth is we don't. Especially when Luke was writing, we weren't a part around this time. And further, um, you know, this isn't just a book from men about God. This is a book from God that's been given to mankind. Yes, there were uh, uh, human authors writing each of these accounts, all these Psalms and Proverbs and all that. Yes, there were human agents writing, but the Holy Spirit was so actively involved that everything they wrote down is exactly what God wanted to be written down. And so because of that truth, Paul can confidently say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is inspired. The Greek word he uses literally means God breathed. This is God's word. And so what we as Christians are to do is follow God's word, not man's word. Regardless of what they say, regardless of what they pull up and say, oh, did you know this is wrong? And did you know you didn't understand? Okay, we may, we, maybe we under, misunderstand certain things and we'll learn things as we grow on, but never let those skeptics shake your faith to think that this is somehow incorrect or wrong. This is God's word, and we trust it. When we come back to, to Luke, um, you know, we, we read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is basically like the, the prologue, where Luke is kind of explaining how the reasons why he's writing this account, because there are a number of accounts at that time. And he takes pains to say, I investigated thoroughly. The, the life and ministry of Jesus. I went to those people who were still alive because Luke is writing this probably around 30 years after the, the, the death of Jesus. So people who knew Jesus, who were witnesses of Jesus are still alive. And Luke is like, I interviewed them. I followed closely. I investigated to the exactness. And he tells Theophilus, who's the guy most likely commissioning Luke to write this account. He says, Theophilus, I, I, I want you to know the certainty of your faith. The certainty of the truth, the word he uses for certainty um, could literally mean not to trip up. Like basically, I want you, Theophilus, I, 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 to, to, I've investigated everything so thoroughly, so closely, so that you, your, your understanding of who Jesus is, your faith in Jesus will not trip you up in this life. That it'll be, you'll know deep down in your bones, beyond a shadow of the doubt, that everything you believe about Jesus is true. So again, as we get through these passages, let's not let these little hiccups shake us. 
because if you again we're, again we're we're always uncovering new things you know there's a lot of archaeologists still finding new manuscripts and recently i don't know exactly know how many years ago but we've uncovered uh, evidence manuscript evidence to show that Quirinius looked like he served two terms he served in syria twice and both times there was a census and you go really that's kind of interesting no that's what they did in rome there was sensi or censuses, <laughs> the plural form of censuses, happening all the time. I mean, it wasn't an, 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 an abnormal thing. And so that's a big possibility as well. But again, it's God's word. Let's trust it, not man's word, no matter what they, what they say. I've, I've heard one pastor say this is, a, this is a, 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 an anvil that, many, that has dulled many hammers that have tried to break it up. And I'd like to like that. And as Charles Spurgeon said, you know, uh, defend the Bible. I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it'll defend itself. You know, that's, oh yeah, that's like, put that on your t-shirt right there. Um, so this is God's word. So at this time, a census went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse three, and everyone was on his way to register or traveled to register for the census, each to his own city. Verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, that's what they were living, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And when they say went up, it's very interesting because Nazareth is about 18,000 uh, feet above sea level. Uh, Bethlehem is about 25, or not 18,000, 1,800 feet above sea level. And Bethlehem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So literally you are walking up to the city, which is, hey, Bible trivia. There you go. Um, Anyways, where was I? Yes, so he goes to the city of David called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is an interesting word. It comes from two words that literally mean house of bread. Here's another little nugget Bible trivia. Later on in Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus declares himself as the bread of life. And I just think it's so interesting that the bread of life was born in a bakery. You know, the house of bread. Think about it. It's just interesting. There you go. Hey, that's what you pay for. Um, so Joseph probably grew up in this in the city of Beth- Bethlehem, which is why maybe his family is from there. He's going to Bethlehem. Again, some censuses didn't require that, but apparently this census required people to go to the place of their, their birth, their family. And so he's going there, but there's something bigger happening here. And if you continue on in the last, uh, the last portion of verse four, four, it says, because he, Joseph, was of the house and family of David. So again, what Luke is bringing up again and again and again is that all the promises that God made in the past, he's fulfilling. And this, this is just so cool. This just shows God's power. You know, when we, when we define awesome, that's, that's who God is. God is awesome. And it doesn't matter if there's a wicked government, wicked leaders, crazy society or anything. None of those things can stop God from accomplishing his will. <laughs> that's so cool. And so here, you know, Joseph and Mary are going to Bethlehem. All right, there's a census, we gotta go. But behind the scenes, God's like, I'm fulfilling my promises. Micah 5, I believe chapter two is where it mentions Bethlehem, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Guess what? He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Again, God's saying, hey, 
I make a promise, you can take it to the bank. I'm going to fulfill it. And I'm going to use whatever. I'm going to allow governments to be put in place. I'm going to allow them to, to give a census because that's going to push you to go to Bethlehem, which is going to, again, it's just all these moving parts working so beautifully together to accomplish his purpose. So, um, so he goes to the, 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 the city of David, Bethlehem. David was actually born in Bethlehem. He was a shepherd there before he came king. In order to register, verse 5, along with Mary, who was engaged to him, who was betrothed to him, and was with child. So technically, Mary didn't have to go with Joseph, but it makes you wonder if the scandal of her pregnancy was starting to spread around that little town of Nazareth. And she's like, Joseph, get me out of here. You know, she visited uh, her, her, her relative um, and now she's going away to, to Bethlehem. Uh, and she was with child um, in verse six. And while they were there, the days were completed. They had come to a, a fulfillment for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. In Greek, it's the firstborn son. Again, uh, not only implying the fact that eventually Joseph and Mary are going to have other sons and daughters because that's what they did. She was not eternally virgin, as some churches will say, teach, uh, but also the significance of being the firstborn son. We looked at that last uh, week, and especially you're going to see that in Luke uh, chapter 2, uh, verse, I believe, 23, when they present uh, Jesus uh, at the temple to declare it holy, be set apart for, for the work of God. So he's the firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, or swaddling clothes. And moms, you know that. Babies move their arms all the time, so you just kind of wrap them up nice and tight and laid him in a manger or a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the word um, inn, there, there are two words used in the Greek, uh, especially in Luke. There's katalume, and then there's pandacheon. Hmm. Um... One, the pandacheon, actually means an, an inn, a place, a lodging where you would pay. There may be some food there. Travelers would go there. It's, it was actually used um, uh, during the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's where the injured man was taken to a pandacheon, this inn. So motel, six of the eastern area, whatever, um, ancient times. This word that he uses here is katalume, which is a lodging place, but it's, it's, it's more akin to a room or a guest room. In fact, uh, Jesus refers uh, to uh, the place where he and his disciples are going to have their final uh, meal before he's crucified as a katalume. You can find that in, in the book of Mark chapter 14. And so, you know, we have this image of, you know, Mary and Joseph coming into Bethlehem. Mary's like just, you know, in labor, route ready to burst, and they're knocking on the inn of the hotel, you know, the ancient hotel, and the innkeeper's like, sorry, no room for you. And you're like, what a jerk. You know, you're going to sleep with the animals. And it's like, it's probably that didn't, that's not how it went down. Uh, you know, again, we got to kind of push away the veneer of the season and just get to what was probably happening. And um, this was most likely a, a guest room at maybe a family, a relative's house that lived in Bethlehem. And the way first century homes were, were set up is you had the ground floor where during the day, uh, people would do their daily activities there. 
And then at night, they would actually bring the animals inside to that ground level, and the family would then go on either this raised platform and sleep, or more, more than likely, they would actually have a second story, and that's where they would actually sleep. And the animals would actually even offer some warmth during the cold um, months. Were there caves that were barn or barns, something similar that we would think like a barn? Yes, there were those in those days, but mostly the rich had those. And for the mo- more common people, it was just one dwelling place, and they had the animals in there, and they had the katalume, the place, the lodging, the place where they can, uh, they, the family would sleep, and maybe even family members sleep. So here is Joseph and Mary coming to Bethlehem, and they probably go to a family a relative's house, and because of the census, maybe other family members are there, and there's just no place for them. I'm sorry, it's kind of taken up. So now they're going to have to be on that ground floor, and that's where uh, Mary's going to have to give birth and use a manger to to place uh, uh, Jesus. And I I can't think of a more humble um, way for the king of the universe to be born. It's just so awesome. You know, I mean, it's it's not, it's, it's weird for a lot of people, like, Really? You'd think coming down with angels and fanfare, here he is, and eventually the angels do. They, you know, they do a big fanfare. But really born among animals, you know, placed in a, in a feeding trough. And it, it reminds me of um, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 16, where it says, you know, we do not have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with us who has in every way been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. And as we think of the birth of Jesus, it's the reality, Jesus became like us. John talks about in in chapter one of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became like us to sympathize with us. I mean, Jesus experienced, Jesus knows what it's like to be treated poorly. Jesus knows what it's like to, 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 to battle, to, to, to see the temptations of sin of this world. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to just live in this world with sickness and death and evil. He can sympathize. So Jesus came to this world. He became like us to, to sympathize with us. But hallelujah, Jesus is unlike us in the sense that he is not just a man, nor an angel, nor some other supernatural entity. He is God. And because he is God, he can save us. He can rescue us from our sin. So Jesus became like us to sympathize with us. But hallelujah, he's unlike us because he's God. And so because he's God, he can save us. And here's the thing. If we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who's working in our lives so much, uh, so intimately to make us more like Jesus. So he becomes like us to sympathize. He's unlike us. He's God to save us. And when we put our faith and trust in him, Jesus makes us more like him. It's just like, wow, this is just so cool. Amazing truth, you guys. Um, in Luke chapter one, 
the the focus uh, is is around Zachariah and, and and his Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and it's also focused around a, a young girl named Mary and her soon to be husband Joseph, and uh, around that wrapped around chapter one is the expectations of Israel. You know, I mean, you just read a lot of the the fulfillment, and in fact, if you read the rest of uh, chapter one uh, from where we left off last week, uh, they just burst out in the song. You know, Mary bursts out in the song. Zacharias bursts out in the song later on. And it's all showing all this Old Testament language that God is fulfilling. And again, that's on purpose. Luke wants to show that God makes a promise. He's fulfilling it. When we get to chapter two, the story gets much bigger and moves from just focusing around a few people and a nation's expectations to now the world when Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. See, when the majority of Bible readers read the first verse in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, um, many will say, oh, this is the start of the Christmas story. Or this is information given to show the reason why Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem. Or the author Luke is giving us historical information to show that this event actually happened. But if you were a first century Christian reading this passage and you came to that phrase, Caesar Augustus, immediately, I mean, I would, I would, it would it's hard for me to believe otherwise, immediately you would understand the significance of the backdrop to Jesus's birth. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take some time and, and we're going to look at Caesar Augustus. So if you guys, some of you don't like history, too bad, so sad. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do some history here. Uh, and if you, if you like history, you're going to be, yay, this is great. This is going to be amazing. But if you don't like it, just stick with it because uh, we'll, we'll wrap this all up at the very end. So um, I'm going to fire up my iPad and ooh, get all technical right here. Um, and I'm going to really stick with my notes so that I don't mess things up. There it is. And there we are. So <clears throat> during, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, no, it's just a background. I just wanted to make sure it's there. It'll, 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 there'll be a picture right now. Uh, during a pivotal part of Rome's history, here we go, uh, Julius Caesar. There we go. Yes, it's working. Julius Caesar, he was a politician slash general turned ruthless dictator, started making changes in the way Rome functioned. Eventually, he was assassinated in what they call the Ides of March, which is March 15th, 44 BC, in case you want to know another nugget of trivia there. Prior to his death, Julius adopted his nephew Octavian as son and ultimate successor. Here's a statue of Octavian big eyes there. Uh, Octavian's first uh, two official acts as Rome's new leader was to one, hunt down and kill all of his adopted father's murderers, and number two, host a series of elaborate games in his honor. In July of that same year, Octavian was attending uh, one of these games in honor of his adopted father when he saw a comet in the, in the sky. And he took that uh, to mean that his adopted father had become divine, that he had risen, he had ascended to the right hand of Zeus. And so if your dad is a God, what does that make you? The son of God. In fact, that was 
That was his title. That's what he allowed the people uh, to uh, refer, refer to him as. In fact, there were coins that were minted and used as propaganda to prove that he was the rightful ruler. And this is one of those coins. As you see on the, the right, that's actually the comet. And so this is referring, again, a lot of the coins referring to the fact that, you know, Caesar, Julius Caesar was divine. And again, by extension, he is also divine. He's the son of of God. After the death of Julius Caesar, uh, Rome was thrown into chaos for about 13 years. There was a... Civil wars going on. There's different factions trying to gain uh, power. But finally, in 31 BC, Octavian defeated his main rivals. And for the first time in 13 years, there was peace that lasted 44 years. And this became known as Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. It was uh, the Golden Age of Rome. Uh, not only was it a time of stability, it was also a time of prosperity as the empire expanded. And so this is uh, Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus. I mean, it just, you know, just took over a massive amount uh, of, of land there. So as a result of uh, Octavian's great achievements, the Roman Senate uh, voted and gave him the title Augustus, which means the illustrious one, the venerated one, the one who is worthy of praise. And the, the name took on more of a religious significance and could kind of describe in the unique authority that he had. Because Augustus was the one who brought an end to all the civil wars that were going on and united the empire under one rule, he was hailed as the great savior. In fact, the themes of freedom, justice, peace, and salvation permeated his reign. Whenever uh, the great deeds of Augustus were proclaimed throughout the empire, uh, they would refer to it with using the Greek word euangelion, good news, or gospel. And, and, and messengers who would go out proclaiming the good news of Augustus were referred to as evangelists, proclaimers of, uh, of good news. Yeah, I told you, this is all great stuff, you guys. History's amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, from those themes emerged uh, what we call uh, the, the, basically the emperor cult or the imperial cult uh, resulted in this. Uh, one ancient historian named Tacitus noted that Augustus was surrounded with such an abundance of religious honor that many people thought there was not enough, there was nothing left to worship the other gods. Um, while other leaders were regarded as gods only when they died, Augustus was the divine son of God when he was still alive. And so this is a, a, a excerpt from an ancient poet, uh, Horace, uh, around around 15 uh, BC in the epistles of Augustus. He says, upon you, Augustus, however, while still among us, referring to Augustus as you're still alive, we already bestow honors, set up altars to swear by and confess that nothing like you will arise hereafter or has ever arisen before. Now, Statues of Augustus were built to stand alongside other gods and shrines. Um, there's an example of, uh, in, in Ephesus, they actually reoriented some of the buildings so that the, the, the temple to the emperor, uh, to worship the emperor, could be the focal point of the city. I mean, again, it's just 
significant there. Um, this is an actual inscription from Asia Minor where uh, all the cities basically adopted uh, uh, Augustus's birthday as the start of the new year. And I want you to look and listen to the, the language here. Um, I'm going to go here this way. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, referring to that time of chaos, uh, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas providence, that's the idea of the thing, this force that's moving things along in, in, in our world. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor Augustus, whom providence filled with strength for the welfare of men, and who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally, the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news. There's a Greek word, euangelion. Concerning him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. There is not uh, one place you can go in the whole Rome, Roman Empire um, where the recognition, honor, and worship of Augustus Caesar was not present. We have records of up to 50,000 images depicting Augustus, and those are the only ones that survived. Here's, here's one of those pictures. It's kind of small. There. So there's uh, Caesar Augustus right there in all of his glory. And you see that little baby right there? That baby refers to mankind kind of just shows you how he viewed himself, how the people viewed him. I'm Caesar Augustus, the, you are mankind, I have transcended above you. If you were traveling on Roman roads, there would be these mile markers that proclaimed Caesar Augustus as a son of God. We have an, we have an inscription of an oath people would make uh, to Caesar and his descendants. And look what it says here. Um, At the command of Caesar Augustus, the son of God, I swear by Zeus, the earth, the sun, and by all the gods and goddesses, including Augustus himself. That's a double honor there. To be favorable to Caesar Augustus, his sons and descendants forever in speech, in actions, and in thoughts, considering as friends those he considers so, and regarding his enemies those he judges so. And to defend their interests, I will spare neither body, nor soul, nor life, nor my children. Entire cities were commissioned to be places of complete worship to uh, to Caesar. And when those people would gather together, they would refer to those gatherings as ecclesias, which in the New Testament we translate as church. It's a gathering, a called out uh, assembly. It's it's impossible to overstate the significance of Caesar's influence in the world at the time of Jesus' birth. So when Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, it's not incidental. Luke wants to know, wants us to know 
that there's this bigger thing happening. In the corner of this massive empire, a new king is born, ushering in a new kingdom. While Augustus sat on his throne in Rome, hundreds of miles away, something was happening that was so epic, it would change the world from that time on. It's very true when we get to, to uh, uh, back to the book of Luke, that uh, there's, uh, Jesus is described with all this rich Old Testament uh, language. Um, but we can't overlook the staggering similarities between what is said of Caesar and what is said of Jesus. If you lived during that time, you would have not missed those similarities. There's a reason why Jesus is described the same way as Caesar in the Roman Empire. If Jesus was described one way and Caesar was described another way, it would have been acceptable to worship both. Rome was actually pretty tolerant. Uh, you could worship anyone or anything so long as you still honor, honored Caesar as Lord and you couldn't worship anything at his level or even above his level. You know, Caesar had to be everything. But when Savior, Lord, King, gospel, peace, and salvation are specific descriptions applied to both Caesar and Jesus, now you have to choose. Who is your Lord? Who is your Savior? Because they can't be both. The issue Rome had with Christians was not that they worshiped Jesus. It was that they worshiped him as Savior. They worshiped him only as Lord, him only as bringer of the good news and peace and him alone. That was the issue. As you continue to read Luke's gospel, the difference between the two saviors and his kingdoms could not be overstated. The kingdom of Caesar Augustus was a kingdom of the sword. The kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom of the cross. The kingdom of Caesar was built on fear, power, control, oppression, and bondage. The kingdom of Jesus is built on love, peace, freedom, humility, and loving your enemies. So at the birth of Jesus it wasn't this sweet and gentle hallmark event. It was the start of a revolution. A new king had come, a new kingdom had arrived, and this kingdom would threaten and remove all other kingdoms in the world. And I'm sorry for boring you. No, I'm talking about Sammy right there. You guys, I don't care. Children, I, I care about. Um, <laughs> But that's why Jesus, when he talks, he's talking about the kingdom, he talks about it in ways that, you know, it's going to start off very small, almost insignificant, and then grow. He, you know, says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is a small seed. But when it grows, it grows into this plant that's large enough to have birds and build their nests into it. What Augustus claimed about himself, or at least allowed others to claim for him, is turned upside down by this baby born in a manger. What was supposed to be true about Caesar turns out to be actually true of Jesus. Caesar and his kingdom are the imitation. Jesus is the real deal. And that's why this all matters. This is, this is kind of the point. We are far too easily pleased with imitations. There are a lot of Caesars in our world. We have the Caesar of fame. We have the Caesar of popularity, Caesar of money, power, pleasure. You can go ahead and fill in the blank. And each one of these Caesars promises the same thing, that if you would just give your allegiance, you will find good news, you will find joy, stability, and peace. And for a time, they might, those, those things actually might give you those things, but in the end, 
their boastings prove hollow. In the end, they are found to be cheap imitations for the real thing that can only be found in Jesus and his kingdom. Now, I understand some, some in this room and maybe even those watching online have fallen for the lies of these fake saviors. Or maybe you've come to the conclusion that you can worship both. Maybe you have the idea that you can follow this Jesus and your bank account. Maybe you can follow this Jesus and your dreams and your desires. You can follow this Jesus and your family and your friends. You can't worship both. There's only one Lord, Savior, bringer of good news. And he does not, to, he does not like sharing those titles with anyone or anything. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Some of us will actually say, no, no, you know, I, I do want to follow Jesus, but unfortunately, the Jesus we follow is actually an imitation Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. A lot of people are drawn to a Jesus who wants nothing more than for us to be happy and comfortable, a Jesus whose ultimate joy is giving us our heart's desire. This is a Jesus who doesn't ask much. He doesn't call us to surrender all of our lives as we pursue and follow him. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is a revolutionary. And I know some people don't like that description of Jesus as a revolutionary, but when you really think about it, Jesus came and he stood against the Roman empire in all of its pomp and all of its power and promises of good news and peace. And he exposed it for what it truly was, just a cheap imitation. You see, 2,000 years have uh, gone by um, since Jesus. And when we re refer to Caesar, we're basically ordering a salad with our meal. But Jesus is worshiped by countless men, women, and children from almost every tribe, nation, and tongue. I want my children to reject the Caesars of this world for what they truly are, just cheap imitations and I want them to follow Jesus, not because following Jesus means doing good things, being nice and trying not to cuss. I want them to follow Jesus because he's so compelling. I want them to stand with him and join his revolution, not as a religious activity, but because there really is no other way to live than to live for him. When it comes to Jesus and his kingdom, there is no equal, there is no competition. He is the true savior, Lord, master, king, bringer of good news, peace and salvation. All hail King Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's a simple passage that's so familiar to many of us who've been part of church for a number of years. But Lord, the, the, the significance, its punch gets lost in the veneer of the season, unfortunately. And so Lord, we, what we celebrate this season is not a little baby, cute little cuddly baby in a feeding trough. We celebrate the start of something huge, the entrance of a king and a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And for us who are followers of Christ, we are already a part of that kingdom. We are, as Paul describes, citizens of heaven, citizens of your kingdom right now. 
It is an amazing privilege. But Lord, it's your kingdom. It's not our kingdom. You are the king, not us. And so Lord, may we worship Jesus as the ultimate king of our lives. The only king of our lives, the only savior, bringer of good news, peace and salvation. Help us not to be so easily swayed by the cheap imitations in this world that promise peace and goodness and joy, but they don't, they don't live up to it. Lord, maybe there's some in this room right now who have never fully given their allegiance to you. I pray that, that, that today would be that day they would recognize there's only one Lord they are to serve and that's Jesus. There's only one life to live and that's a life surrendered completely to Jesus. It doesn't come always with happy songs and comfortable moments, but it is worth it. Because in the end, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming back and establishing his kingdom forever. It's amazing truth. So again, thank you for this time. Pray that you'd bless each one here with the knowledge that um, you're a good king. And no matter what's going on in their lives, you're still ruling and reigning. And nobody or nothing, no pandemic, no, no social problems or whatever is ever going to stop you from ruling and reigning. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.